Hello to our loyal listeners. We are so proud and excited and honored to have been nominated by the Willamette Week as the best podcast in Portland. It would mean so much to us if you could take a moment of your time to click the show notes in the episode you're listening to right now. And there's a link right there. Click on that. You can go give us a vote. We would be so appreciative. Thank you so much for your time. The following episode contains graphic descriptions of physical abuse, sexual assault, and homicidal violence. Listener discretion is advised. There are nearly 20,000 murders annually in the United States. Perhaps it's the weather, but the Pacific Northwest has become the notorious home of serial killers and bizarre crimes. We're here to discuss those murders, to try to understand the motives, respect and remember the victims, and explore the humanity of it all. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. And And this this is Murder in the the Rain. Rain. Have you made any resolutions this year, Alicia? I'm not doing resolutions. I'm doing goals. Yes, that's true. We talked about this. Yeah. I'm sticking to no obligation 2020 because no obligation 2019 was really fantastic. What do you mean about obligation? Like no commitment? To... No, just not doing something out of the feeling of being obligated and reevaluating what oh, I'm see. doing. Why am I doing it? Am I, I going to go hang out at this party or am I going to go meet this person for coffee because I want to or because I feel obligated? I think that's smart. I actually, when I got divorced, made a rule with myself that I was going to stop doing things that I didn't have a vested interest in. So like, that's why you never go out anywhere. And that's not true. I go out. I just, (laughs) you know, I pick and choose like, what is my priority? Like last night I needed to finish this case. So I skipped multiple things, you know, even though I was, if I'm honest, tired by 6 PM. So I probably wouldn't have gone anyway, (laughs) but no, I mean, I think a lot of people have that goal. It's a good one. Mine has been in terms of the show to like get really organized with my cases. Not that I not organized but like maybe align them ahead of time to match up with anniversaries Mm. or look for areas we haven't covered yet or I don't know even like interviews and things like that but as I look for these cases I I come back around to Corvallis all the time my hometown yeah so I thought like maybe I should just keep that going and get a few more of those cases because as a kid did you like that intro? As a kid. I did. <laughs> As a kid, I thought I grew up in a super safe place. We didn't lock our door, despite one incident where my mom had a stalker. That's a story for another time. Oh, casual. Nothing ever happened. One incident. One incident. We'll talk about it later. But I mean, Sounds we like slept recurring. in the yard in the summer. Oh, yeah. You just went wherever. I walked to school by myself in first grade. Like, it just wasn't a scary place. And it wasn't until I got older And granted, I have a strong interest in these types of stories. I now find there are tons of horror stories from my hometown. It sounds like Corvallis is the land of it. Like (laughs) parents are just kind of not around and there's just bad stuff happening around. Well, I had a lot of like friends with single moms who are working and just weren't around. And I stopped going to a babysitter at about eight. And it's pretty common, I think. But yeah, we were left to our own devices. Anyway, I decided, why not embrace it? Let's talk about Corvallis again and talk about a serial killer who I have always found to be super terrifying and I hate to say or admit this, very intriguing to me. He was discovered in a time where the term serial killer was not yet widely accepted, where they were just starting to realize that people like him blended into the rest of the people. They didn't stand out for a major reason. 
And this guy was like very good at that. And while this case may have been shuffled down in priority to other newsworthy items of the time, primarily the Manson family murders, it made huge waves in Oregon. It made history more than once with the legal proceedings. And I don't know how a necrophiliac with a love of ladies' shoes and the feel of silk on his derriere doesn't make news notoriety. But today, we're going to revisit his headlines. In 1969, women around Portland, Oregon, began to disappear. The papers published articles on how women could protect themselves, from pretending to faint, to screaming and kicking, and even walking on the outside of a sidewalk to avoid the inside shrubs where men could lurk. While there was mass hysteria around these unexplained disappearances, there was initially no connection between them. Not yet, at least. Unraveling the tapestry of mystery to what happened to these women began, as it has a tendency to do, with the discovery of a body in the river. The Long Tom River is a tributary of the Willamette River. Flowing between the valley cities of Corvallis and Eugene, the river runs roughly 57 miles between the Willamette and Fern Ridge Reservoir. Today, I've counted about 11 bridges crossing it. However, in the 60s, there were half as many. And one of those bridges was Bundy Bridge, newly rebuilt in 1961. Bundy Bridge was a popular spot to find fishermen looking to catch their dinner. And on May 10, 1969, two fishermen were doing just that when they learned that you don't want to catch everything you find in the long tom. In fact, what they found in the river that day would haunt them for their lifetime. George Montgomery and his son Boyd were enjoying a father and son day of fishing when they made the grisly discovery of a body floating in the river mere feet from them. They took off to town to alert authorities, who then removed the bloated body of a young woman, partially dressed, bound with nylon cord and copper wire, and weighted down with parts from an automobile. During autopsy, there were signs of strangulation, petechial hemorrhages, a fractured hyoid bone, and the mark of a ligature around her neck. The body was quickly determined to be that of 22-year-old Linda Saley, who had been missing for over a month. The medical examiner marked her death as traumatic asphyxiation by strangulation. There were unexplained markings left on her body that couldn't be accounted for. These were two post-mortem needle punctures on each side of her ribcage, both surrounded with burns. Authorities searched the river in hopes of locating additional evidence, but what they found would blow up into a case of a lifetime. Not a single homicide, but multiple. Two days later, and just 50 feet from where Linda Saley was pulled from the river, skin divers found the body of another woman. She, too, was weighed down with a car engine, fixed to her with cord and copper wire. But this discovery was even more gruesome than the last. The woman was bound and dressed in a green sweater and skirt. Underneath her sweater, the girl wore an oddly oversized black bra, stuffed with paper towels for the appearance of breasts because hers had been cut from her body. This time, it was the missing 19-year-old Karen Sprinker, and just like Linda Saley, she had died of traumatic asphyxiation. Linda was last seen in the Lloyd Center Mall parking lot in Portland, Oregon. Neither girl knew each other, but they were similar in ages and both attended school. Karen was a full-time college student, and Linda juggled classes alongside her job as a receptionist, and that was one of the best leads detectives had. Oregon was in a panic. There was a psycho killer on the loose, and authorities had to work fast because there were still two other women of similar age who had gone missing, Jan Whitney and Linda Slauson. 
Could they have also fallen prey to the same person? Police had plenty of evidence to try to form leads with. Engine parts for mechanics to help identify, lingerie brands to locate in stores, and a place to start, college campuses. Linda went missing in Portland, Karen and Salem, the bodies discovered just south of Corvallis. Since Corvallis also happened to be where Karen lived and went to school, it seemed like the best place to start. Lieutenant Jean Doherty and Detective Jim Stovall started at Callahan Hall, the dorm where Karen lived. They wanted to start speaking with girls that knew Karen, and it seemed natural to begin asking them about their dates. After interviewing dozens of girls, a few noted that they had received similar phone calls. So the men took note. A man would call, ask for a common first name like Mary or Helen. The girls would come to the phone and find out that the man was a total stranger and they didn't know him at all. Typically, he'd ask for a date and the girls noted that sometimes he said weird things like he had ESP powers or that he was a prisoner of war. But most often, the girls all claimed that he said he was a Vietnam vet. And while many of them had never met the guy, there was one that did. And her story was the most interesting to the detectives. Also, I like that that's his upsell. Like, hey, I'm just fishing for dates, by the way. It's I've got ESP. It's so unique that because he was doing it so often in the same dorm, like, hello, that's going to pique someone's interest, right? Like, that's kind of weird. But then it got me wondering, like, is that something other people did? Like, how do you even... Maybe the original Tinder was just cold calls. Just cold calls. <laughs> just smashing some numbers and guessing a name. I don't know. Two days after the second body was pulled from the Long Tom River, a junior at Oregon State University had a night she would always remember. Like the other girls in the dormitory, late one evening, the student received a call from a man asking for her by first name. On the line was a gentleman she didn't know. He explained to her that he was a Vietnam vet He was lonely, and he hoped that he could take her out for a Coke and talk a little bit. Now, I'm not sure if this is normal behavior, but the girl must have been somewhat uneasy. I mean, after all, a stranger is calling her and asking her on a date. So she explains that she's diligently working on a term paper. She has to focus and just politely declines. But he negotiates. He claims he can help. In fact, he tells her that while in recovery from the war at the Walter Reed Hospital, he learned a special study trick, and he'd be happy to share it with her. Now, in retrospect, the girl assumes that maybe she's gullible, but at the time, she was super intrigued. I mean, hello, term paper. Well, important. and also, she's a student, so it's not like she's 45. Like, she's right. and it's her young. dorm. Like, maybe it's another student. We were just talking about how dumb we were at 19 and 20 years old. So it's like, yeah, you go, oh, you can? Okay, cool. Like, yeah, I mean, not... anything to help if I'm, like, cramming mm-hmm. for a test and somebody's like, I know a trick. Yeah, I'll help. Why not? So it intrigued her enough that she said, okay. So she asked for 30 more minutes and then said she'd meet him. In all honesty, I, w- I would probably meet someone. If I got a random phone call, They're I'd like, be like, hey, I got to go see what this is. I got to go see what this is. This is going to be a good story. I got to go see what this is. That concerns me. Well, let's I'm let's still, try to learn from these stories. Still today. alive. Please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> My number is. OK, so the man shows up at the dorm and the girl comes down to meet him. Now, she describes him as tall, a bit older, maybe 30, tubby. Thinning blondish red hair, and he's pale with freckles. And my favorite quote, not very good looking. (laughs) So she has a bit of a change of heart. And, you know, it is 10 p.m. at this point. So she says, why don't we just stay in the lounge instead? We can talk here. He's frustrated, but he agrees. So they sit down and start to chat. 
Now, after a few moments of conversation, the man decides to show off his study skills with a shoulder massage. He explains to her that the trick to studying is all about relaxation. And what's more relaxing than a shoulder massage? Well, how about getting one while thinking of something sad? So he instructs her to think of something sad, and she can't. So he goes, well, what about those two girls they found in the river? That's sad. Right? <laughs> so she's sitting through this. None of this is relaxing. I know, none of it. Well, so she she holds it together and sits through it, and he's starting to get more agitated and suggests they go on a walk. He doesn't like the lounge. So she goes with him. Oh, no. I know. <laughs> but I mean, I've, I've been massaged by strangers, and you're just like, okay, I'll just smile and nod until this is done. Like, We'll talk about that later. Oh, him. So Life. on the walk, he convinces her to go get the Coke after all. So he takes her to a local drive-in. They get in his car. She describes it as a station wagon. She can't remember anything other than it being messy. There were kids' toys and clothes in the back, and it had Oregon plates. Now, in the car, he starts telling her about prison camp at Vietnam. And then he startles her by asking why would you go with me? Why would you trust me? So she's obviously growing more and more concerned. And he is just talking and talking, asking all these what ifs, like, what if I was kidnapping you? Or what would you do if I raped you? So she replies, she's like, I would fight you. And he changes the subject and starts talking about religion or weather or something. But then he ultimately comes back to rape saying over and over, well, I'm not trying to rape you. I'm not trying to rape you. I'm not raping you. So Ugh. she's super concerned. But Luckily, the date ends. He takes her back to the dorm, walks her to the door, and he says, hey, I'm going to be back in two days. Would you want to go on another date? And out of fear, she says yes, because yeah. all she wants to do is get away without, you know, she doesn't know how he's going to react if she says no to him. Right. So she says yes, and luckily he didn't call. Now, police see this as an opportunity. The girl has indicated she thinks this guy knows way more about these murdered women than he should. And they agree. This is honestly the only lead they have at this point. They have to go with it. So they coax the girl to agree to have this date. And they explain to her, you're not going to have to go anywhere with him. I just want you to accept the date. Give us a call. Stall him a little bit so we can get there. And we'll be waiting for him. You won't even have to see him. So she agrees, and the guy ends up calling 11 days later. And I'm sorry, how did they get her? How'd they find her? So they were interviewing all of the people that lived in Karen's dorm, hoping oh, that they could she just was find... It was like in, okay. blind interviewing. Okay. This detective was super smart, thought, you know, that's the only place we can start until we know more about the engine or we know more about the wire we found. Okay, so the guy calls back, and again, he's requesting a date to go get a Coke and have some conversation. She she stalls. So he's like, I can be there in 15 minutes. And she wants to stall him for maybe 30, 45 minutes. She's like, I have to dry my hair. Or what, you know, they'll say, yeah, I have classic. to wash my hair. Like she really is like, my hair is wet. I got to let it dry. So she then calls the police and they send a couple of guys over to wait in that lobby. So the guys are sitting there in plain clothes, looking at the door, waiting. And they see this older, large man walk in. And he's looking around, scanning the area for obviously his date. And they're thinking, that's got to be him. He's got the freckles. He's big. He's, you know, Tubby. not very good looking. <laughs> <laughs> so they walk up to him and they're like, hey, who, who are you? And the guy calmly replies, well, my name is Jerome Brudos. So let's take a little time to get to know old Jerome. Jerome Henry Brudos, who goes by Jerry, 
was the accidental second son born to Henry and Eileen Brudos in January of 1939. The Brudos family had hoped to add a little girl to their family since their firstborn was already a perfect son, and the addition of Jerry was somewhat of a disappointment to the family, particularly mom, who would have much preferred a girl. It wasn't long before Jerry began to understand that he essentially meant less to his parents than his brother did. He described his childhood as painful emotionally, and since it was very obvious to him that his mother didn't like him much, he learned not to like her. Around the time that Jerry was five, the family was living in Portland, Oregon. And now I know it was a different decade, but I still find it really strange that a five-year-old kid was left to go play out outside on his own. So he's just by himself, and one of his favorite places to play was a junkyard around the corner. Classic. Well, if you don't like the kid... Yeah, I guess you don't really care. Go ahead. That's sad. So during one of his junkyard visits, Jerry found something that would be a huge significance in his life, and that was a pair of women's shiny dress shoes. He was immediately drawn to them. They were shiny and different and something his mom would never wear. So he brought them home. Now, his mother Eileen walked in to find him proudly prancing around in his shoes, and rather than praise him for cuteness, she belittled him and told him how wrong it was and demanded he get rid of them. He didn't because he had already grown obsessed with them, likely fueled by mom's disapproval. So when his mom found him wearing the shoes again, she burned them and forced him to watch. Oh, I know. I picture him just like drawing another X over her face at this point, like one more strike, mom. And just like this whole back and forth, like, wait, here I am playing with, you know, girls shoes and all you've talked about is how you wanted a girl, like what you know, like yeah. that. I'm sure for a kid that little would be conflicting too. Of like, well, and it's probably one of the first things he ever loved, and she just right. like nonchalantly burns them in front of him. Also, for those people that get so obsessed with the gender, first off, stop. Secondly, like, okay, then go adopt. If you're gonna end up hating your kid because it's a boy, like, then go get a yeah, girl. Yeah, I don't think that was that popular back then. And <sighs> I know. I hate people. All right, so now Jerry finds himself without his junkyard shoes, but his fixation still remains. By the first grade, he's busted in school trying to swipe a pair of his teacher's high heels. He's hiding them behind blocks, hoping nobody notices, and somebody tattles on him, and he gets them taken away. She gets mad, and he's in tears out in the hallway. This kicks off the beginning of a rough couple of years for Jerry. He's sick all the time. He has sore throats and laryngitis. He ends up having to get multiple surgeries on his toes and fingers for fungal infections. And he has frequent headaches that he claims will plague him his entire life. And then, of course, he fails the second grade due to absences. The next few years, the family is moving around a bit. And by the age of 12, they're living in Grants Pass, Oregon. Next door is a family with multiple teenage daughters. He describes that he would often sneak into their house and try on their stuff. And this is when his obsession with shoes turned into all things ladylike, panties, bras, and some of them he took with him and he'd take them home. As Jerry grew older, he started, as most boys do, to get curious about sex. He found nude images his older brother had hidden in his room. And when caught looking at them by his parents... Rather than tattle on his golden child brother, he actually took the blame, securing his position with his mom as the worst child. She would continue to stifle his sexuality by shaming him throughout puberty. He detailed how if he had wet dreams, she would force him to wash his sheets by hand, and it was the only pair he had, so he'd have to sleep on a bed with no, with no sheets while they dried. 
This actually reminds me a lot of Gary Ridgway, the whole suppression of sexuality mm. and like demonizing the child. Yeah. Kind of festers into hating their mother. Now, during puberty, his childhood obsession crossed the line into fetish at some point. He began to sexualize the undergarments as well as the shoes as he got older. He was fascinated by this, and though he would end up stealing more and more, and then he would begin to use them during masturbation. He also tells therapists that at this age of around 16, he started having fantasies about capturing a girl and making her beg for mercy. And I think this is around the time that all the therapists agree that his hatred of his mother manifests in kind of a hatred of all women or like he sees them as a subspecies or something. Or like I can't control. My mom is so controlling of me. I need a woman I need in to that control place that I can control. Every woman. Mm-hmm. Right. The fixation didn't stop with stealing and hoarding panties and shoes. He began needing more and more and wanted to see what he could get. In the summer of 1955, still age 16, Jerry plots a bizarre event to help him see his first live naked woman and perhaps get his own pictures to remember the occasion. He's kept up his hobby of panty theft, so he decides to offer his help to one of the local girls whose underthings he had stolen. When she expresses dismay that her items were taken, he claims that the local cops are aware and that he's been shoulder tapped to help them as like an informant or an undercover teenage cop. So he tells her she should come over and he can help her get her stuff back. I'm sure she's hesitant, but she like spent all her money on this stuff and wants to get it back. So she agrees and goes over there. Now, when she's at his house, he excuses himself for some reason, and he goes and he puts on a mask and he grabs a knife and he comes back in pretending to be this panty thief to scare her. And he demands her to take off her clothes or he's going to hurt her. So she's worried for her life, obviously, and decides to just comply, takes off her clothes. He's taking pictures and then he runs out, takes off the mask, gets rid of the knife and comes running back in and is like, oh, my God, are you okay? I saw a guy leaving the house and I tried to catch him, but he got away. Now, she's not an idiot. She knows it's him. He's the exact same build. He's wearing the same clothes. He has the same voice. So she's like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, okay, gathers her stuff and runs out. Now, she doesn't tell anyone right away. And I'm guessing it's either out of fear or, like, the worry that no one's going to believe her. Right. But it isn't until later that summer that she ever tells anyone that it happened. Well, and it's a weird thing, too. It's almost like, what do you report, like like it is right. but it's like an attempt of an assault but he didn't like, i mean i'm sure there's a something, something for taking new photographs as a kid you'd be like i don't even know if that like that's yeah. i'm sure there was like that's my fault i went and yes. like i invited him well in and my it's room. such a, like a as a teenage girl in that time like your virtue is everything right and here she's exposed for the world to see right yeah i mean who knows what it was but yeah. we know later she tells someone Now, by the age of 17, Jerry steps it up a notch. He offers a girl a ride, and once she's in the car, he starts acting really weird like they're on a date. And obviously, they are not on a date. She's just getting a ride somewhere. But he drives really fast, doesn't say anything, and takes her to a deserted farmhouse, drags her out of the car, where he then begins to beat her in the face and chest. Now, he starts demanding for her to take off her clothes, and she's trying to claw her way away from him. And just as she's like... Hoping to get any traction, a car pulls up, thank God, and there's a couple inside. Now, the husband kind of peeks out and asks what's going on, and Jerry starts making up these stories about, like, how his girlfriend fell out of the car, and it startled her, and now she's crying uncontrollably. But the guy's like, uh, no. no. She's bleeding. You're clearly beating her. So he gets the guy, gets them both to come in the car to drive them to town. Now, once in town, they call the police, 
And Jerry ends up telling police everything that his intention was to take nude pictures. He made it all up and he did attack her and he felt really bad about it. He brought both of them in the car? Yeah, in the back of the car. I hope, I mean, I, I wasn't there, but I'm hoping maybe he sat in the back. I don't know. That's wild. But they wanted to make sure he didn't get away and that the girl got medical attention. I guess, but like then you're just in the back like, okay, this, this is guy, done now. Like, yeah. Oh my God. And I also crazy. don't know how long the attack was. Maybe it was 30 seconds until they pulled up, but all of it's very creepy. So police take it seriously. They go to his house and they find his stash of women's clothes and shoes. And among them are photos of undergarments and a naked girl. Now, he insists the photos came from another boy in school that asked him to develop the film. But the police know who the girl in the photo is. So they decide to go talk to her. And now she's feeling safe and she's OK to tell them about the ordeal she suffered at his house when he pretended to uh, be the panty thief. So Jerry's now arrested for assault, and he's referred to Polk County Juvenile Department and eventually ends up being committed to the Oregon State Hospital. So he's around a sophomore at this time, sophomore, junior. He seemed to do well at his time at Oregon State Hospital, where he regularly saw a psychiatrist and talked about his sex life, or rather the sex life he fantasized about having. During the day, Jerry would go to high school in Salem, and the rest of the time he would receive treatment at the hospital. After about eight months of what they call evaluation, doctors didn't really find any abnormalities with him. He didn't show signs of severe delusions or hallucinations. So in their professional opinion, with some growing up, he'd do just fine. So off he goes to go home and resume his normal life as a teenager. To Jerry's mother's dismay, he's now living back at home and going to Corvallis High School for his last two years of school. Nothing much more to say about this time. He appears to have actually lived a normal and otherwise unpopular teenage existence. Once he graduates, he joins the U.S. Army. He does have an affinity to electronics, so he's seen as an asset. But during his Army stint, he begins to have vivid dreams. Dreams about a Korean girl who comes to his room to seduce him at night. In his dreams, he doesn't want her attention, so he beats her. And this is every night he's having this dream. So these are very unsettling to him. So he brings them up to the army chaplain and psychiatrist and ultimately gets discharged from the army because I'm guessing they could see his potential. Wow. I, that's surprising. That's, yeah, that's it's extreme. I seems think. extreme if but I'm maybe, like coming to you for help because I'm having maybe they knew his background and he was like on a yeah, probationary. Like, like, no, thank you. I shouldn't have this guy. If anything comes up, let's get rid of him. You know? Yeah. Not long after, he's back living at home again, but this time in the shed. His mom likes his brother best, and since his brother is also living at home, he gets the room and Jerry gets the shed. Is dad still around at all? He is. Now, Jerry describes his dad as kind of being second to his mom. Mom bosses him around. Right. Dad actually likes Jerry, but still not as much as his older brother. And mom still wins, so he exactly. has to have and, that space. And I think he learned at a young age his dad would stop protecting him and okay. he just kind of took the brunt of it i guess so around this time that he's living in the shed jerry gets busted at oregon state because he's on campus back to his old tricks it seems a dorm attendant hears an alarm go off and finds that clothes are being stolen the alarm goes off again so she alerts the campus security who then come and find a car belonging to jerry in the parking lot and when police find him and take him into custody, he doesn't have a license. And slowly but surely, he admits to having stolen two suitcases and filled them with women's clothes. 
there isn't really much done about this, at least from what I could find. I did find the article in the newspaper about them arresting him, but you don't know if he like gets fined or spends a night in jail. I think it's kind of brushed off because it's not really a serious offense. Right. You just give the clothes back. Right. Like maybe a prank on campus. Right. So I don't know how much they looked into his background or if it was sealed and they couldn't find that out anyway. Now, in the future, Jerry describes that he actually began to delve into more serious offenses shortly after this theft. He claims that he saw a woman walking in Corvallis who was wearing some irresistible shoes. He follows her home, strangles her until she's unconscious, and then steals her shoes. And then he talks about sleeping with the shoes because it made him feel powerful. Now, at the age of 21, Jerry is looking to get more serious about life. He gets his FCC license. This is basically what you need in order to work on radio telephone transmitters. And apparently not a lot of people have this skill set. So he ends up getting a job at a local radio station. While working at the station, he befriends a young son of one of his coworkers and makes an offhand comment about wanting a girlfriend. Now, the kid, eager to please his older friend, suggests that he introduce him to a local girl he knows named Ralphine Leone. She's a smidge younger than Jerry, just barely 17, and she agrees to go out with him despite parent disapproval. They get serious pretty quickly. In fact, they're so serious that they plot a pregnancy so that they can get married. Ralphine knows that if she gets knocked up, her strict German father will have to allow them to get married. And lo and behold, it works. Within a year, they're pregnant with their first child. And by September 61, they're getting married. Oh, so they purposely got pregnant. It wasn't like, let's pretend that you're pregnant and then nope, we'll say they you actually lost got pregnant. Commitment right there. Wow. He was committed to being a serious adult. <laughs> Their first child is a daughter, Teresa, and Jerry is described as being pretty detached to her. He doesn't really like her. He leaves her to his to his wife to raise. But despite this, the marriage seems to be happy. They have their challenges. Jerry can't find consistent work, so they're moving all over Oregon, trying to take jobs wherever he can find them. And a few years later, they end up pregnant with a second child, a son, and he's very excited about this. So Ralphine goes into labor, and she doesn't allow him to come into the room with her. She makes up some some excuse like she doesn't want him to get mad at the doctor for touching her private areas basically like it's very uncomfortable for her he's very upset by this this is like a low point in his marriage if you ask him about his marriage this is the time where he's like yeah that wasn't good at all Hmm. and he also claims that it set him off that he then decided to leave the hospital go stalk a woman in portland And he choked her until she went limp. He raped her and then he stole her shoes. So it's like he's escalating with every incident that happens. All right. So now we have a little bit of background about him. Let's get back to when Brutos is confronted by those officers in the dorm lounge. So I'm disappointed to tell you that that was not the moment where they get to arrest a monster and clap each other on the back and go about their day. Brutos answered all of their questions honestly, and everything checked out. His name was Jerry. He lived on Center Street in Salem. He was in Corvallis doing lawn care for a friend, and he had some extra time on his hands, so he thought he'd meet up with a student for a date. His car was a greenish-blue station wagon. Really, everything he told them was right, and they had nothing to arrest him over. So all they could do was get to work figuring him out. They found out that he just so happened to live in the same neighborhood as a missing girl, Linda Slauson, one that they have not yet located. He worked in Lebanon, very close to an area that Jan Whitney, another missing girl, was last seen. 
His current job was in Halsey, only a mere six miles from where the bodies had been found in the Long Tom River. The coincidences just kept coming. Karen had disappeared from the Meyer and Frank. He lived just blocks away. Everyone was buzzing. They knew that at one point, coincidences stopped being a faint glimmer of guilt, and at some point, they become real evidence. They just had to find it. The day before Linda went missing, there was an attempt made to kidnap a young girl. Now, she was a little younger than the other girls, but perhaps there was a connection. 15-year-old Gloria Jean Smith was walking near Parrish High School in Salem when a man in a green Volkswagen Carmen Ghia attempted to force her into his car with a gun. She thwarted the attempt and ran away screaming to a neighbor, and the guy took off. Police were curious to see if these incidents were connected, so they thought, heck, let's give it a try. They presented the young girl an array of photos. Among them was one of Jerry Brudos. She lingered on his photo and said, this looks like him, but the guy who tried to take me had freckles. The guy in the picture didn't. But what Gloria didn't know is that detectives knew about the freckles. They were testing her. They knew that in the photo, the freckles couldn't be seen, but Jerry Brudos indeed had freckles. They stepped up their investigation. Detectives Frazier and Stovall went to the Brudos' home to talk to him. Jerry took them into his garage and they began to chat. The detectives tried everything they could to get him to slip up and incriminate himself, but he didn't take the bait. He calmly answered every question. So they took advantage of the time on his property to take in their surroundings. And what they saw in his garage were ropes. Ropes with special knots, knots that looked like they were skilled. So what I call the heebie-jeebies fell over the detectives. They wondered, are those knots similar to the ones we found on the bodies? And at one point, Brutos notices them staring at the knots and he says, hey, did you want to take that? And he gives them a knife and they cut the knot away and take it with them. (laughs) So, I mean, the detectives are shocked by their luck. They're like, okay, maybe this guy didn't do anything. I don't know. After this visit is about the time Jerry Brudos gets himself a lawyer because he knows that the cops are looking at him. Now, police are then able to get warrants to search Brudos's green Comet station wagon, as well as a vehicle he had access to. His good buddy who lets him borrow his car owned a green Carmen Ghia. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. So, of course, Brudos has already washed his car inside and out, stating that when he went through the car wash, his son had rolled down the window, and that's why the seats were wet. Classic. Mm -hmm. Classic mistake. Especially roll-down windows, you know, with the crank. (laughs) I know. Whoa! Oops! (laughs) Oops, I accidentally did it, Dad. Police were sure they had the right guy, but they had to tread lightly. They didn't want to botch such a huge case. So they painstakingly followed the man everywhere. Maybe he would slip up, or maybe they would prevent him from hurting someone else. They had similar knots and enough coincidences to sway anyone, but they still weren't ready to make an arrest for murder. But they did have something else, the young Gloria Smith. Linda and Karen weren't alive to tell their stories, but with Gloria, they had a living, breathing witness who had gotten away. With her witness testimony, selection of the correct picture, and Jerry's access to his friend's Volkswagen, they were ready to make a move. On May 30th, 1969, Jim Stovall and Jean Doherty finally had a warrant. They pulled behind the Brudos family car with lights swirling, his wife driving, and his two young children also in the car. As the detectives aimed the flashlights into the car, they looked away from a very confused wife and kids to find Jerry hiding in the back seat under a blanket. They told him he was under arrest for armed assault. Side note, that gun was a toy gun. 
that he keeps using in all these. Oh. It's just a plastic gun. Fun. I forgot to write that in. I should tell you. <laughs> I'm Dar- curious, too, like, what did he tell the wife? Nothing. She knew nothing. But I mean, like, to to be hiding in the back of the car, though. Well, like, he claims- Hey, hun, let let's play a fun game of <laughs> I'm going to lay under this blanket. No, so he claims he was really tired and had been working all day and was sleeping, but the detectives watched them pull off and switch drivers. So, um, I mean, it did kind of sound like a right story to his wife, right? right? He's tired. He gets these headaches I'm all the so time. I'm so tired. I have to go lay down. Right. Also, if the cops ask, I'm not here. <laughs> but that's unrelated. Don't but worry the, about but it. But it's at a left field for her. She does right. not know not what is going on. Right. Armed assault. And they don't say anything more than that. They just right. take him. Doherty and Stovall are the ones to take Brutos to be booked and have his mugshot taken. And this is basically where they strip you down, check for weapons, and give you jail clothes to wear while they take you to your cell. Well, they were in for a surprise. As Jerry strips out of his manly plaid and slacks, <laughs> eyebrows raise as they see the sheer women's panties that he's sporting underneath. He notices and says, I have sensitive skin. Oh. <laughs> I just love that part. And tucked among Jerry's things was a nude photograph of a woman with only her body visible, no face. And in the background was a Sears Craftsman toolbox. This went into evidence, perhaps something they could use on a rainy day. It took three days, but Detective Stovall, ever the experienced interrogator, was able to start picking away at the cocky exterior of Jerry Brudos. What he found underneath was a man who hated his mother and was dying to tell the world about all the bad things he's done to women. While Stovall worked on Jerry, the police also got the joy of searching the Brudos' home. Inside, like all other panty collector connoisseurs, they found the mother load. What did they find, you ask? Well, let's start in the workshop. So here is a pulley system with hooks in the ceiling, complete with a very familiar looking cord. Copper wire, a blue shag carpet, a Sears Craftsman toolbox, tons of photographs of women's naked torsos, several images of a woman suspended in the nude seemingly deceased, one image of the same woman still alive in heels on a shag carpet, a seemingly lost photo found by an officer in the corner of the room, and in it was a hanging woman, mirror pointed up at her crotch, and in the edge of the mirror, one can see the face of a moon-faced man with lust in his eyes. In the house, they find paper towels, which appeared to be a near-perfect match in color and texture to those found on Linda's body, stuffed in the bra she was wearing, a paperweight in the shape of a very realistic human breast. Now onto the attic. They found 40 pairs of high-heeled shoes in sizes 4 through 10. Any style your imagination can conjure up, they found. Piles of undergarments, slips, panties, girdles, 15 bras from sizes 30A to 38D, and creepily described by Anne Rule in her book, Lust Killer, quote, clear spots where the man had crouched and pawed through his treasures, stimulating himself with his fantasies. Now that Jerry was willing to talk, the missing pieces could be put into the puzzle so that everyone would know what happened to the two women found in the river but also they would learn much more about the women they had not yet found. Police were hopeful that they would easily match the evidence they found to the story Jerry told so that they could have a solid case for homicide. 
Jerry was not one to shy away from opportunity. The first woman that he ever killed was Linda Slauson, a beautiful blonde 19-year-old door-to-door encyclopedia saleswoman who mistakenly arrived a little too close to the Brutos home in southwest Portland. On January 26, 1968, Linda had an appointment with a family to show them some samples and hopefully make her first sale. Unfortunately, she either didn't write the correct address down or perhaps it was smudged in the rain, but as she scanned the neighborhood hoping to miraculously find the right house, instead the wrong person found her. There in his driveway was Jerry Brudos who led her to believe that he had the appointment. Rather than bring her into the house, he offered her the door to his workshop, claiming that they had too much company over and that they would be disturbed, and he was very interested in buying encyclopedias. She wasn't a paranoid person, and really wanting to make a sale, she decided it was cool. Moments into being in the workshop, she goes to grab a sample from her bag and is surprised to be hit over the head with a large object. It's likely that was the last thing she ever remembered, because Jerry had walked up behind her and deftly hit her over the head with a four-foot-long two-by-four. She was unconscious and slipped from the stool she was perched on. He then strangled her with his hands until she died. He described that after he choked her, he dragged her body underneath the stairs to hide her, and then went into the house where his mother was watching the kids. He convinced her to go out and buy burgers for the family and not to return until they finished. While the family was away, he went back in to spend time with Linda's lifeless body, but a friend interrupted his special time. It took him a while to convince his friend to leave, but he ended up claiming he was working with nitroglycerin in the basement and that he couldn't talk long. Once the friend left, he went back to pull out his little plaything hidden beneath the stairs. And at this time, so he's still married? Yes. And they're all living with the parents? So at this time, the relationship is starting to get rough. And his wife spends in in court had talked about up to four days a week staying at friend's house until basically until dinner time. And then she'd come back. Now, once in a while, his mom would pop over to watch the kids and just to be around them. And so when his wife was gone, mom was there and he could be. Okay, so he didn't still live with the parents. No, they had they just lived in the area. When asked if he could remember what Linda wore, he said all he could remember were her underclothes, a blue bra, a slip and a girdle over red panties. He spent much of his time with her dressing her up like a doll in his collection of lingerie, but eventually his family would return home, so he'd have to leave her behind. Early in the morning, around 2 a.m., he loaded her into his car, drove her to a bridge over the Willamette where he could throw her off the side. He prides himself in his cleverness because he pulled off to the side and pretended to change a flat tire. So he put the jack under his car so that way if someone pulled over, he could explain it away. No one was coming, so he then took the moment to toss her body over, and she was tied to a car engine that weighted her down. Okay, I need to understand how. Like, car engines are very not light, so So how did he just pick up? We do talk about this a little later, but... He is known, like the the second thing people will say about him other than being like super average, not good looking, is that he was incredibly strong. And his friend that had come over that day was often someone he would work on cars with. And he said he once saw him lift a 300-pound refrigerator all on his own. So he's very, very strong. Now, the, wow. the, the okay. part of the car engine they're using and the body of these women who are quite small right. is under 200 pounds. Okay. But we do, we will talk about it. Okay. <laughs> Jerry did keep part of her. He kept her left foot 
cut it away from her body using a hacksaw and stored it in his freezer. This wasn't merely to remember her by, this was actually to model his shoe collection. After some time with the foot, he decided he needed to give that up too, and he weighted it down and threw it in the river to be with the rest of her. Linda Slauson has never been found. Less than a year later, in November of 68, Jerry would find himself with yet another opportunity to fill his dark needs. While Jerry and his family were living in Salem, he commuted to Lebanon for work. During one of his evening commutes home, he saw a woman next to two men in a broken down car on the freeway, so he stopped to offer his assistance. The woman mentioned that the two men were hitchhikers that she had offered to give a ride to, so Jerry said he could drop them off where they needed to be, and then he'd take her to go pick up his tools and come back to fix her car. They all took him up on the offer, so after he dropped the men off, he took the woman, Jan Whitney, to his home on Center Street. He claimed that they were locked out and that he'd need to wait for his wife to return home to let him into the house to get the tools he needed. As they sat in the car in the garage waiting for Mrs. Brutos, Jerry climbed into the back of the car behind the seat of young Jan Whitney. He offered her a distraction while they waited. It's a little bit odd, but she did oblige. He suggested that she close her eyes and try to do this thing where she would explain how to tie a shoe without using her hands. She attempted this, and while she did so, he used a leather mail strap to strangle her. He pulled the strap tight until she was obviously dead, and when he was sure she was, he went into the house to make sure his family was not home. When he confirmed that they weren't home, he went back to the body to have sex with her. He did this multiple times. He kept her body for days, hanging it on his pulley system. He claims having her up, hanging from the rope, made it easy for him to dress her up and take pictures. During his time with her, he got the idea to make paperweights of her breasts. His idea was that he could cut the breasts from the body, skin the fat away, and mount it over sawdust. Once mounted, he could use plastic to create a mold, so then he could pour metal into it to make these paperweights. But what happened is he used too much hardener, and it didn't turn out very well. Jerry went on to describe how he went back and towed Jan's car away from where it was left on the freeway, but after seeing a couple of police officers on the road, he ended up just leaving it at a local rest stop. Now, I know we like to point out that moment where the world could have been saved from a sadistic murderer, and I hate to say this is that moment. One day, while Jan Whitney is hanging in his garage, the Brutos family is out visiting friends, and during their time away, there's a car accident outside of their home. The car crashes into the garage, leaving a big gaping hole into the side of it. It was a locked garage, so the officers didn't actually go inside to assess the damage. They just looked on the outside. Now, had they peeked their head in with a flashlight through that hole, they would have seen her body hanging there, but nobody did. They just oh left a card. So he called what are them. the odds of that? Like of every garage to hit. I know. Of all of them. So he gets home to this card gets rid of all the evidence and then calls them and they're able to do the insurance adjustment or whatever. But it's just like that moment in every case Mm -hmm. where they would have had him and saved so many lives, but they didn't, they didn't quite get there. By spring, Jerry needed his fix. He took to waiting in parking lots of department stores, hoping to find the perfect victim. In his sights was 19 year old Karen Sprinker. 
Karen was a smart pre-med student with excellent grades and a long list of accomplishments at a very young age. She was class salutatorian, part of the National Honor Society. She had scholarships and awards, and she had a plan for her life. Instead, while she was on her way to meet her mother for lunch, she crossed paths with a sadist on a mission to find himself another doll. When Karen was late for lunch, her mother called home and eventually left, assuming something came up. She asked the restaurant to call her if Karen had arrived. They never called. She began to panic and called anyone she could think of and eventually started calling hospitals in the area. She knew Karen was on her period and wondered if maybe she had intense cramps and it caused issues that needed medical attention, but none of the hospitals had Karen. So she went to the police. Per usual, police tried to explain it away, telling her parents that kids go missing all the time, she'd show up, she probably ran away with her boyfriend to get married. They tried to explain Karen was the opposite of that. She didn't even have a boyfriend and she would never ditch her promising life. Eventually, police listened and began investigating and they found that her car was abandoned in the parking lot of Myron Frank, the very place she was meeting her mother for lunch. There were, of course, sightings of Karen even one so promising that they tracked down a credit card slip to find the woman. But of course, it wasn't Karen. Little did they know that Jerry had taken her and killed her almost immediately. It would take nearly two months before they would find her body. Jerry saw her right there in the Meyer and Frank parking lot, mentioning to detectives that the girl herself didn't attract him. It was the opportunity that did. Her clothes and shoes turned him on, so he took her. He grabbed her by the shoulder and told her not to scream, forcing her into a car with his toy gun. He drove her to his home and during the drive asked her if she was a virgin, which she was. She also told him she was on her period, to which he confirmed with the police by saying she was wearing a Tampax. This detail was something that police never mentioned to anyone. The girl's mother had told them that in confidence, so literally no one would have had that clue. It just validated this mm -hmm. even further. Once Jerry got talking, Stovall was shocked to find how easily it would be to link up the information. We all know that police hold back details so that they can get murderers to misstep and give them extra information. And he kept doing it time after time. Not only did he know about Karen's menstrual cycle, he knew about the black bra that she had been dressed in, a detail that was never given to the media. Jerry had taken the girl into his workshop where he dressed her in his clothes he made her wear black patent leather high heels to match the black lingerie and took lots of pictures. He then tied her up with hands behind her back and put a rope around her neck. He used his pulley to hoist her up into the air and he watched her kick as the life seeped out of her. Once dead, he had sex with her body multiple times before taking another try at his coveted breast molds. Again, he couldn't get the plastic hardener just right, but he mentioned that it had improved a bit. Jerry dressed Karen up in her own underwear, sweater, and skirt, but he put her in one of his black bras he held so dear. Once his family had gone to bed, he drove her body out to the Long Tom River and weighted her down with car parts and tossed her in. Things were clearly escalating, and not even a month later, Jerry was ready to find another girl. He made some missteps, two attacks where women got away. One of these attacks police had already linked to him, the other was a total surprise. On April 22, 1969, Jerry had tried to abduct 15-year-old Gloria Jean Smith. This one we knew about. Her testimony helped get him behind bars in the first place. But what police didn't know was just one day prior, Jerry had tried to abduct another woman from a parking lot in Portland. 
The woman, unaware that a man was watching her walk across Broadway in Portland, had moved to a parking garage where she had left her car. After a frustrating day of meeting her soon-to-be ex-husband to talk and losing her keys, she was not surprised to find that she couldn't locate her car in the garage. As she walked around looking for it, she realized someone is behind her. Then there's a tap on her shoulder, and she turns to find a large freckled man with pale blue eyes. She felt off in an instant, even before she noticed the gun in his hands. He tells her that if she doesn't scream, he won't shoot her. Rather than go with him, she does scream and she backs away. He tries to grab at her, but she's really small and light and super fast and begins kicking and screaming. He eventually gets a hold of her face and tries to cover her mouth to muffle the noise. But she's feisty, so she took a bite and locked on and refused to let go. So she's drawing blood, and he's trying to smash her face on the ground, and she just will not let go until she sees a car pulling up, and then she finally lets go because she thinks she's going to be saved. She ends up passing out. He runs away, and the police come and take her take her testimony and get her some medical attention, but they never did link it to him. And even after the fact, after they find out all of these things he did, he never... He never got any jail time for that. I think they, they thought, well, we have him on more things. Why would we need that? After two failed attempts, I can imagine Jerry was very riled up and incredibly frustrated. He's now on his third day of loitering in parking lots, and he sees 22-year-old Linda Saley. Linda, a part-time student and receptionist, had been at the Lloyd Center shopping for her boyfriend. She planned to finish up shopping and head to the pool to swim, where he was a lifeguard except she never showed up, and she never showed up to work the next day. Police, at least at this point, are taking these disappearances very seriously, so they automatically start investigating. But what they didn't know was that day when she was shopping in Lloyd Center, Jerry Brudos had been shopping too. Jerry picked himself up a fake police badge, one that, according to him, looked very real. As Linda left with her packages, he approaches the garage where she's at, and he says, She's been suspected of shoplifting. She says, oh, no, I have all of the receipts. I, I assure you they are all purchased and they're mine. And he, he explains to her, well, I need to question you. And she complies. Jerry tells Stovall that the girl seemed to have wanted to go with him. She was that compliant. He drove her right to his house. No questions from her mouth. Drove her into the garage, closed the doors. His wife was home, so he told her to wait in the garage, tied up, to be quiet or he'd kill her, and he goes inside to talk to his wife about dinner. He ends up having dinner with the family, goes back into the garage where he sees the girl has untied herself, and she's still waiting there for him. Now, this isn't something police can confirm, right? I mean, maybe he's telling the truth, or maybe he's this just... This is his fantasy. Exactly. Of, like She wanted exactly. this, so she sat and waited and... I think that's more likely that he's making this up in his head. Walked out and she's like frantically trying to untie it. Absolutely. And, yeah. Jerry took out his leather mail strap and put it around Linda's neck. She turns to him to ask him why he's doing this to her and he tightens it around her neck. She is fighting for her life, kicking and scratching and she, she can't fight him. He pulls it tighter and tighter until she eventually goes limp and dies. Well, especially if he's known for being freaky strong. Yep. You know, what chance do you have? Like Karen, Jerry hangs her up from his pulley. This time, he had something new in mind. He wanted to try an experiment. He took two needles, hypodermic needles, and stuck them into the sides of her rib cage. He then fastened electric leads to the needles 
and plug them in. So he had hoped he was going to make her body like jolt around and dance. Mm. But really, it just left those odd burn marks that we couldn't account for earlier. Right. Jerry continues on to say that this girl's nipples were far too light and didn't show up in photographs, so they didn't appeal to him. But he did, however, try to make molds of them. But again, something went wrong. The epoxy he was using was too hot, so he never did get a mold of her. So he just ends up with the two molds that they found of the two different girls. The next day, he took her body to the same place he disposed of Karen, fixed an engine to her, and threw her into. Jerry Brudos, keen to share his atrocities with detectives, made it really easy to convince the world of his guilt. On June 3, 1969, he was officially arrested on three counts of murder for the deaths of Karen Sprinker, Linda Saley, and Jan Whitney. Initially, he submitted a plea of guilty on reason of insanity based on advice from his lawyers, but he was evaluated by seven different psychiatrists, and they all said the same thing. He knew what he was doing. He knew right from wrong, and sure, he had some tendencies, but he knew what he was doing. There was, there was no insanity there. At the time, there was no death penalty to worry about, so he was up against three consecutive life sentences and perhaps an option for parole someday because we know life isn't true life. It could be 12 years. It could be 13. Mm-hmm. So since he was in his, what, late 20s, early 30s, he could eventually get out if you right. really thought about yeah. it. The families were spared the need for a trial as Brudos and his legal counsel were aware that there was no way out of this one. So he quietly went to prison for the three murders and never did get prosecuted for Linda Slauson. So Linda, he admitted to, but that murder happened in Multnomah County and they never brought charges against him. Again, mm. I think they were like, yeah, we have him on enough, but really I just w- would like to see some justice for yeah, someone. Yeah, for the family too to just have that clo- like official closure. Like mm-hmm. he can say all he wants, but just to have it be like he is convicted for the murder of our daughter or sister. I agree. I feel like that would help a lot in that scenario, but maybe just knowing that he had such long terms was enough for them right. or maybe they didn't have any say at all. I don't know. So let's chat about a different type of victim, Ralphine Brudos. This is the wife of Jerry Brudos. Many people think, how could you not know your husband is a pervy underwear thief and more importantly a murderer? I was saying that the whole time of just like, I'm, I'm curious the dynamic of their relationship given his mother dynamic. And like, I could never, I struggle when it's like, here's a drawer yeah. that you aren't supposed to open, well, let keep alone in like mind, parts of your house. Serial killers are like notoriously good at this, manipulating people and hiding things. So you have to put yourself in that mindset. But her father was incredibly strict and harsh on her and she did whatever he said. And I think she looked for a man like that. And she, that makes sense that right. he would be drawn to her because it's like finally a woman that listens to me without yes. me having to be physical. And she's young. So a lot of people say the reason he wanted someone young is because girls his own age did, saw right through him. Right. Whereas someone young might put him on a pedestal. So she was okay with him mm-hmm. running the household and telling her what to do. She talks about him forcing her to pose nude for photographs that she didn't want to do. He would say, yeah, I'll get rid of them later, but she didn't want to. That was uncomfortable for her. So she was really submissive to him. And I think that that's part of it, that for sure. you're they not going to see it. They both met each other's needs. And it's like, if mm-hmm. he's saying, that's my garage, don't go in there, then that's his garage, exactly. you don't go in there. Like- and it got so bad to the point that if she, their freezer was in there, if she wanted to cook dinner, he said, you have to use the intercom and I'll get you what you need out of the freezer, which did annoy her because she's like, 
I just, just want to stand and look at the fridge. Right. You know, when you just stand there, you're like, what am I going to eat? <laughs> she doesn't know every night. So he's like right. forcing her to plan their meals and stuff. But she just does does it because she loves him. And when well, they're married. Well, and a, a level of controlling abuse as well, obviously. Yeah. like Oh, absolutely. But at the time, that was pretty normal, right? When their marriage started to get bad, she was spending more and more time at other places and didn't even know what he was doing. Right. Like, so I she can't thinks be he's bothered. working or, or, you know, doing stuff in his garage. She never went in there. And when she finally did and found naked pictures, he would explain it away like, well, that's my my dark room. I'm developing them for my buddy. Right. You know, okay. she doesn't she has no clue. And also, if if you're so checked out of the marriage, you're not even at the house. Like, whatever, dude. Like, right. Cool. You got some nudie pics. I just can't care anymore. Exactly. So. But I mean, she suffered greatly. Let's let's like put ourselves in her shoes. Sure, a few times she caught her husband wearing women's lingerie. He always joked it off like he was trying to get a laugh out of her in the marriage. So she didn't take it seriously. And I mean, even if you did, you don't jump from this dude likes to dress in women's clothes to psycho He's, killer. Yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, let's talk about like... Right. Where are you shopping at? Let's go shopping. So this poor woman is going from, okay, my husband's getting arrested for assault to holy shit, he murdered right. all these women to guess what? It's going to get worse. You're going to go to court. She ends up getting prosecuted because they're suggesting she's guilty of helping him. So here's because their, how how could you live could in a you house not and not right and not all of them they're they're prosecuting her for Karen Sprinker so this is what they're basing it on three three main ideas here the first is two people are needed to lift the body and the car engine over the side it's too heavy so that's argument one argument two is suggesting that their daughter seven year old Teresa was a witness and that girl can place seeing her mom and this Karen person together in their house. Yeah, because seven-year-olds are really good at remembering and knowing the truth for sure and knowing adults' faces. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then the third argument is they have a star witness, Mrs. Mary Patterson, who says she witnessed both the Mr. and Mrs. Brutos forcing a woman from the car into the house. Okay. These are the three, the three foundations of their prosecution argument. Okay. So defense takes this on, and this is a very strong prosecution team, but they were able to rip their arguments to shreds. So let's start with claim number one. This is that it takes more than one, right? It takes two right. people. Well, and did he have any say? I'm not sure if you found this information. Like, was this something that he was trying to do? Like, the defense was also like, yeah, let's go with this because that's at least someone else's. He culpable, was already or... convicted. He's done for. Okay, so this wasn't anything he, that he was yeah. pulling out a trick. He's this not is strictly fingers. prosecution. He's not okay. protecting her either. Right. He can't. You know, and they're they're not wanting to. It's the state that's like okay. we're getting her. There's no way that this wife doesn't know her husband did this. Right. She helped him. Okay. So th anyway, they they're saying no. It takes two people. She would have had to help him. Well, this is when they bring on his buddy who's like, no, I saw him carry a 300-pound refrigerator himself. But that alone isn't going to sway the jury. Right. So they want to debunk it using actual science. So they bring on a professional team who recreates the scenario. They drive a station wagon just like the family car up to the side of the river. And with one person, they're able to successfully toss out over 180 pounds, just a single person. So right then and there, they're like, right. guess what? Karen plus car engine equals less than 200 pounds. There's no way like that argument's off the table. Okay. So now on to two. So this is the seven-year-old daughter. 
And before I say this, I would just like to say it is so cruel to put a seven-year-old child in a courtroom in front of her mother where they're asking you to testify against her. Yeah, you've already lost your dad. Yeah. And now tell us about your mom and her friend. Absolutely. And they talk about it being like so traumatic that after her testimony, the lawyer, her lawyer, the girl's lawyer, broke the rules to bring in Jerry's brother to comfort her because she didn't know what to do or he didn't know what to do. Um, so it's just like very traumatic. I I cannot believe I, – I hope that courts are better about that. I know a lot of times they testify over like a video feed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just reading that made me so sad because I knew there's no way this woman – she was a child bride. Like, oh, Right. I know there are plenty of people who, out there who do help their husbands with these terrible things, but there was no real evidence. Anyway, let me get back to the story. So they put the girl on the stand and basically in eight questions – Eight minutes, she's off the stand, right? So the first six questions are taken by prosecution. And they're aiming to basically say she knew Karen ahead of time. She met her on spring break. She saw mom and and her in the same place. And they've heard crying through the garage door. But every single question, she either doesn't know or can't remember. So that's nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So defense gets up there and they ask two questions. And basically, it's like, hey, you remember when I showed you pictures of these women? Yes. Did you recognize any of them? Nope. The end. And it's done. Right. So that that can't be used. Now, the third argument is that a neighbor, well, not a neighbor, a sister of a neighbor actually witnessed the Brudoses pull up in their car, take a blanketed woman out of the car and force her into the house. Okay. But this woman is a gossip and everyone in town is ready to say, yeah, she loves telling these stories, but they ain't never pan out the way she says. Especially now if it's something that like you can... You're going to get to go to court for this, right. and it's a big case. And mm-hmm. and I'm telling you, they need to make a movie out of it just for this scene. It is so juicy and good. Is it I'm- like a Lover's Lane where she caught the vapors on the stand? Basically. I mean, they're just like, <laughs> bam, bam, bam. Like, let me lo- make you look like an idiot. Like, this lady. So, I mean, they what they did is they brought people in with actual photos to show all the places she said she was standing. Like, if it was the porch or the window to take photos and you could see jack shit right there's no way she saw a car or the driveway or anything because they had a cedar hedge so then she says well there were no leaves on the trees and they're like do you know what an evergreen is <laughs> cedar is an evergreen like there are there were leaves, leaves on the trees, right so it's just one thing after another then she's talking about well i saw that the girl was covered in a blanket so then defense is like how did you see her dark brown hair then oh i saw it i saw it how do you know it's a woman? Well, I could tell by the shape. Well, what, what what kind of shoes was she wearing? Well, I don't know her shoes and I don't know what color, but I do remember the exact stocking she was wearing. I mean, this woman was just bad. Ugh, just so, looking for attention. <laughs> exactly. I mean, so they just like flushed this all down the toilet. There was no way to salvage their case right. after this. Can we start a study on like Munchausen by a jury testimony like testimony like (laughs) we could we could do like a rock block of those kind of cases i've witnessed munchausen (laughs) i saw this horrible thing there's probably a name for it we should look into that so on october 1st 1969 ralphine was dismissed of the charges of assisting her husband with the murder of karen sprinker but then minutes later she's arrested for helping her husband escape essentially aiding and abetting 
But luckily, the judge tossed that one out, too, okay. pretty much right away. Oh, this is the whole driving down the street, I'm tired, put the blanket over me. I don't, honestly don't even know. Maybe they're claiming she knows something. I couldn't find a ton of details in the and article. And the judge is just like, stop wasting time. Like, there was, it's not like, oh, what is it going to be? There's a lot of evidence that kind of goes either way. It's like, yeah. there's literally nothing. Leave this woman alone to raise her kids. Mm-hmm. One thing I will say in the articles, I was surprised to find that you could tell they were written almost like they didn't buy any of it. Oh. Usually they like to villainize these people. Right. But They're like, this is such a waste I think of everyone time. knew it was a crooked crap, you know. So Ralphine ends up moving on with her life. She gets her kids back and she changes her name and the names of her children. And I honestly don't know anything more about them. And I am happy for that. I'm yeah. glad that no one really ever found out who they were because I imagine that was a nightmare and her poor daughter is traumatized. Yeah. Time and time again, Jerry tried to have the spotlight back on him, whether it was claiming he was poisoned in prison or pointing fingers at police saying they that he had asked for a lawyer and they never allowed him to have one. Also claims that his guilty plea was tainted due to poor legal guidance. He'd file appeal after appeal and he would handwrite all of the filings himself. Legally, he could get a parole hearing every two years, but oftentimes he would refuse them saying that one of the families of the victims threatens to kill him. That any t- if he were to go to it, his life is in danger. <laughs> oh, poor thing. But nothing worked. I mean, no one took him seriously. At one point, the Oregon Parole Board was basically like, listen, dude, you're never getting it's not, out. Don't you're even bother. Life. His life in prison wasn't easy. He was beaten up a few times. His records show that he was in the infirmary for anal bleeding, for a broken neck. No one wanted to be friends with him, and he ate his lunch alone most days. Great. In 1974, Brutos even tried to claim that he was hypoglycemic, and that would explain his headaches and his blackouts and likely the reason he was committing these murders. But even if that was the case, like, dude, you're not getting out. No one bought into these shenanigans. By March 29th, 2006, old Jerry shoe lover Brutos kicked the bucket. He died of liver cancer at age 67, and at the time of his death, he held the coveted spot of longest-serving inmate of the Oregon Department of Corrections for the 37 years he called the penitentiary home. Nobody wanted him, and he was buried right there at the prison. In the end, Jerry Brudos got the notoriety he so clearly wanted— He's had at least three books written about him that I was able to find. And if you're a fan of Mindhunter, you might remember him from season one. The show played up the rumor that in prison he was known for his love of shoe magazines, which were plastered all over his cell. It's alluded to that he would masturbate alongside these things and the memory of what he did to these young women. While media referred to Brutos as the lust killer or the shoe fetish slayer, I myself like to move forward, calling him the not very good looking moon face shoe and panty perv. I think that sticks, right? It's got a ring to it. It's got a ring for sure. So side note, my reunion for Corvallis High School is coming up and I've been spending a lot of time in Facebook on the alumni pages helping to plan it. And so I decided to go to the general alumni page where any year can be there just to inquire if anyone remembers him. So I was shocked. There were quite a few people that were from his graduating class and not shocked to find out that a couple of the women described him as being so creepy that they avoided him. Like it all is basically what. Right. Fits all. The rumors are true. 
And one of the guys in there said his sister was in her class and recently passed. And but he has all the photos and like yearbooks. And I'm trying to be friends so I can like check him out. But I don't know. It's pretty bonkers that we went to the same high school. Yeah, I know years apart, but right. I had no At least idea. Two. I had no idea as a kid. At least two. you, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. So, what are your thoughts? Questions? I feel like we covered it because I was going to ask about the wife of just like, you know, how do you not? I'd be like, because you tell me, like, don't open that door. I'd be like, why? Yeah, I need to open that I door. I want to see. Yeah, but um, if you're submissive. And- so, yeah, all of that makes sense. What about the car engines? I think you had a question. Oh, about I did. That. Well, um, I have two questions about that. One, did they. So, you said that the Linda woman. Um, that they never found her body. Did they find an engine? Because an engine they found nothing. Wash so away. there is a chance that could come up at some point. They I wonder if that's part find, of why they didn't prosecute, like because they didn't have anything. They did find Jan Whitney's body. So that okay. actually, um, after Jerry went to prison, I think it was the summer of 1970. So the following year, mm-hmm. people found uh, thought it was a lamb in the water and it ended up being her torso. Oh, okay. So they did. They were able to like put her to rest. Gotcha. But yeah, still, still non nothing on the other. Linda. And also, did he go to Costco for engines in bulk? <laughs> like, why did this guy have no? So many okay, engines? so he was a car guy. So he, his friend, who I mentioned, and I didn't, I never did find out his actual name because we'll talk about this in a minute. But some of the people in the sources I read have fake names, and right. most of them I I found the real ones. But this one I couldn't. But his friend who had come when he was with that first victim. He mentioned that they always worked on cars together and that Jerry actually rebuilt his car engine several times. So these were things he had and he frequented junkyards and would pick up scraps. One of the bodies was actually weighted down with railroad track that he had picked up from a junkyard. And I wouldn't imagine like an entire car engine. No, it was like a transmission or, or large pieces. Yeah. But they, I think all of them came from either Fords or Chevrolets. So one of the first things they checked about his car at the dorm was, is it a Chevrolet? Which it wasn't. Oh, okay. um, but they eventually found out the Ford was his old engine. Right. So he definitely had access to these things. Now, one thing I will point out, for those of you who like this case and want to learn more, keep in mind that Anne Rule, who is... a my queen, she changes names for anybody who's non-essential. She does not want to give away people's, you know, they want, she wants to keep their anonymity and not have them like, like this Ralphine Bruto, she would have been probably attacked by people. Like there were people that went to the court just to watch it like a soap opera and already thought she was guilty. So she wanted to protect those people. So a lot of these names in her book are wrong. So if you're searching this case, you're going to see Jerry Bruto's wife, mentioned as Darcy Metzler in nearly everything because every source you find online used Ann Rule's book. Oh, interesting. So what I did is I went to newspapers.com who gave us an awesome deal on a membership as I went to the original articles to about the trial right. about when he was caught and you could get all Could've the names, even the trial. witness names. So everything has changed in Ann Rule. The name of the kids are different. So just keep that in mind if you're writing a paper or doing a podcast that the names you're going to find online are not correct. You need to go to the newspapers. Now, for a full list of our sources, you can always check the show notes on our episode as well as our blog at murderintherain.com. We have a full list for you so you can pretend you're us and try to write the case better. (laughs) (laughs) Or you could just enjoy the show and just leave us a good review on iTunes.
I'm gonna make a significant effort today to not bring up vaginas. No, they're great, but yeah, there are just a few that it's like, we'll save those. I don't need my dad hearing them. I forget that daddy listens. First off, I don't know who daddy is, unless you've got a sugar one. No, it's my boyfriend, your dad. (laughs) You? Someday. Are you guys ready for 21 pages of fun? 21? Yep. (laughs) We are going deep. I read a lot of books for this one. And the feel of silk on his derriere wasn't news. Oh, shit. I messed that up. Hold on. It's great. Derriere. I know. I had to get that in there. With the love of lady shoes and the love of a feel. It's starting. (laughs) Have you missed me? What's that? That's our transition music. The Long Tom River is a tributary of what? Of Washington. <laughs> tributary. Trib- what I say? Tributary. Tributary. <laughs> it's a tributary. Great day, by the way, that they went fishing. A good year, too. <laughs> but great day. That's my birthday. Everyone's favorite year. That's, that's my birthday. <laughs> Don't forget it. Make Not sure my birth that. year, but a good year. 69 was a good year. The summer of 69. A lot of back and forth, a lot of give and take. All right, now back to my word I can't pronounce. The medical examiner marked her death as traumatic asphyx... Oh, here we go. Here we go. I said it in the car. I can do it. The medical examiner marked her death as traumatic (laughs) The medical examiner marked her death as traumatic asphyxiation... I can't say it. I can't say it. What's happening? The medical examiner marked her death as traumatic asphyxiation by strangulation... Authorities decided to search the river in hopes to locate additional evidence. But what they find... No. Fuck. <laughs> but it's instead of being like, oh, hey, guys, I got to get the ambient sound. Hold on. You're like... Can I just oh, not be rude? Try, hey, try to not be rude, but just like... Don't be offended be, by be this quiet. quick moment. If you could just shut up. Sorry that I'm so nice. I'm the nicest guy. I am sorry about that. <laughs> Do you need to look up any DVDs or anything over there, Danny? Mm-mm. No. Okay. I put it away. Just... <laughs> keep away the temptations of my film <laughs> by the side note it was worth it the movie that he was digging out it was worth it that's right dangerous men yeah. oh you greatest, watched it one of yeah. the greatest films of all time cool all right not interested she had died of traumatic asphyxiation so close so close i felt it yeah. i felt it gurgle in my throat <laughs> meanwhile my date for the evening was jamie no we met boys there and my date thought it would be funny to throw his shoe into the mosh pit. And we left with him wearing one shoe. That is pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> and That's that man hilarious. became your husband? No. <laughs> God, no. He was a sizzler cook. Oh, these were the sizzler boyfriend days? I'm going to adjust. Hold on. <clears throat> Her balls. They're very large. I accidentally sat on them. <clears throat> Did he go by Jerome or Jeffrey? It's Jerry. 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 <laughs> I've been traumatized Jonathan. by the big situ the bigging of me and oh, how, that you how accurate yeah. it is and it upsets me to my core. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? I came over last weekend and we're hanging out and they were like, Oh, well, we realized you've been bigged. And I was like, uh, scouts me? And they're like, you know, like 
and big. Tom Hanks big. Like, you know, he's suddenly just an adult, but he's he's still a kid, but he's figuring it out as he goes. And I was like, but he's not really immature, like childlike. They're like, well, no, but just, you know, he's, he's been bigged. We think you've been bigged. And I was like, yeah, that, that, that fits, explains a lot. Yeah. That fits a it lot of things. So much sense, yeah. Brings all the puzzle pieces together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I was like it? Was it something you were eating? No, I had left cheese in a bag and everyone was oh, upset yeah, about it. left a block of cheese <laughs> in a grocery bag, a, a paper one, in our I, fridge. And it just well, seemed at least very, it was in like, the fridge and on the yes, bathroom or true. something. Yeah, that's true. Okay, well, I'm not an idiot. I didn't. I forgot it was in there. It was from Ladies Night. It was an open block of cheese. Okay, we're only on page five. He found new... I don't know why I'm so nervous about being nude. <laughs> Sex. <laughs> Sex. Oh, my God. But he wasn't showing severe signs of delusions or hallucinogens. That's what I was about to say, but I didn't mean that. He didn't show signs of severe delusions or hallucinations. What the fuck? (laughs) Hallucinations. (laughs) Hallucinations. The minute it came out my mouth. I had a panic. What am I saying? (laughs) He didn't show signs of severe delusions or hallucinations. (laughs) And he's in his last two years of schools. Schools. <laughs> and on to the attic, where they find 40 pairs of high-heeled shoes. shoes. <laughs> I gotta get my shoes on. I need a compilation of just Emily's made-up words. <laughs> shoes. Shoes. Sound like Gollum. <laughs> My precious my shoes. These are my shoes. Do you know what I got through all of Christmas without doing? Crying. During one of his evening commutes home, he saw a woman and two men. Two. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.